This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'm just reading one verse of Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is the longest recorded discourse of Jesus in the New Testament. Matthew writes from the standpoint of the kingdom. Of course, Christ is the king of the kingdom. And so this is a revelation of the heart of Jesus. Somebody described it as the manifesto of the kingdom. And it describes also the character and the conduct of the citizens of this heavenly kingdom. And it shows the blessedness and the, of the Christ-like believer, which hopefully that speaks of us. The message begins here with the Beatitudes. And you probably know, I'm sure, that the word Beatitude comes from the Latin beatus, which simply means blessed, blessed. And it is used nine times in nine verses. So before we look at our text today, it would be good to see what this word blessed really means. Various translators, depending on which Bible you have, uh, they vary in their meanings. They say it means to be happy, to be envied, to be greatly rewarded, to be spiritually prosperous, to be satisfied with good things, and so forth. Now, blessed was a familiar word to Jesus' audience, but Jesus is now going to use it in an unfamiliar way, and he often did that. He would take a word that they knew automatically, and then he would change it uh, to an entirely different meaning something beyond what they had been thinking. And so Jesus here is using an old word, but he's giving it a different context. Blessed, in the way that they had understood up to now, was related to the Greek gods. Only the Greek gods could be blessed, could have divine joy, could have complete and utter happiness, to have perfect bliss. Only the Greek gods could experience that. That was not for mere mortals like us, like the disciples. But Jesus here turns it around and shows a blessedness that is for us that is for mere mortals, that is for those who know Christ and who trust him and follow him. 
And even though they only believed it was for the Greek gods, it didn't stop them trying to get it. The three cultures of Jesus' day were the Greek and the Roman and the Hebrew or the Jewish culture. And, and the Greeks sought this blessedness. Even though they felt it was unattainable, but yet they desperately wanted it, and so they sought it through knowledge and enlightenment. And you know, people are still trying to find a blessedness in this life through knowledge and enlightenment. The esoteric religions do this. They, they seek for some new revelation. And if only we knew more, if only we had a better revelation, then we would attain to this dizzy height of blessedness. The Romans, they thought they could get it through power and wealth. And there's those today who think the same. If only they could climb the totem pole of professionalism and they get to the top of the totem pole of whatever it is they do. And if they got there, you know, as a professional or as an artist or as a celebrity or, or as a singer or whatever it may be, if they could only get there right to the top, then they would have this complete happiness. They would be made. But of course we know that's not really true because the totem pole is often the greasy pole, isn't it? And oftentimes what goes up comes down. And then the Jews, of course, they tried to find this uh, uh, through, I suppose, trying to keep rules and regulations and laws often of their own making. And if only they could keep it perfectly, if only they could keep it 110%, then maybe they would have a blessedness. But Jesus comes along and he speaks about a blessedness, a peace, a spiritual prosperity that was not dependent upon happenings. Much of our happiness, we depend on happenings. And if something happens, it's wonderful, we're happy. But if it doesn't happen, well, then we're sad, we're miserable. And so the happiness that Jesus speaks of here is internal, not external. It's not dependent upon outside circumstances or situations. It would be a wellspring that would spring up from within to those who trust Christ and know him and follow him. Blessedness in the Greek language is Makarios. Anybody ever been to Cyprus for your holidays? One or two? They tell me it's beautiful. I've never been there yet. Must put that Sally on her bucket list. Oh, you've been. That's right. <laughs> That's right. When were you? Hey, this is a revelation I never knew about. What? You win Claire, okay. How did I miss that? <laughs> Home alone again, there you are. <laughs> Cyprus used to be known as the Isle of Makarios. The Isle of Blessedness. And the reason why it was called that was simply because it was such 
a beautiful island. It was arable. It was productive. It was fruitful. It was not dependent on its neighboring countries to supply anything. It was completely, totally self-sufficient. You could live their life to the full. You didn't need your neighbors around to give you anything. You didn't need to import anything you had at all. And that is the picture Jesus wants us to see about blessedness. That we, through him, have something internal that gives us a joy and a happiness and a peace and a prosperity that's not dependent upon outside circumstances because all of that is subject to change. And we know how quickly it can all change. In an instant, it can be gone. So we need more than that to satisfy us. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Paul and Silas, when they were beaten and whipped and put into prison, and they were hurting, they were in pain. But even though that was their external circumstances, but inside, they began to pray and worship and glorify God. Because no matter what was happening on the outside, they had something on the inside that was bigger and greater and better. And they prayed and they worshipped so much that God shook the very jailhouse. I think that was the original jailhouse rock. But I don't know. But This fourth beatitude gets really to the heart of our spiritual ills. It's like a spiritual thermometer that tests our internal temperature. Remember years ago, we used to go to the doctor, he'd tell you to open your mouth and he'd stuck in that little glass mercury thermometer. Now they've got a contraption to stick it in your ear, don't they? But it's the same thing, it's to find out what your temperature is internally. Are you overheating or are you not overheating? And this particular beatitude tests our spiritual temperature. Are we hot? Are we cold? Are we tepid? What are we? So this finds us out, as it were. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now God has put within all of this strong desires, passions, yearnings, longings, wants, needs, appetites that are physical. We have physical appetites of various descriptions. And they're primal appetites, the physical ones. We have to have them. We have to eat. We must eat. And that hunger for bread, for food, we're born with it. And we die with it. It's absolutely vital in our lives. We have emotional hungers. We want to be loved, needed, 
want it, desire it. It's the way we're wired. We're, it's built in. We have to have that. There, there's mental hunger, if I could put it that way. The, the desire to have knowledge. Even a little child. <laughs> it's, not, it's not that old. It starts to ask the most profound questions. You wonder, where did that come from? Because they're curious. They want to know, well, how does that work? Why does that happen? When I was a wee boy, I had a tremendous curiosity about how things worked. Every toy I got, I dismantled it. I had to know how that worked. I never could put it back together again. I wasn't that bright. And so my parents despaired of ever getting me any toys because I wanted to know. And children growing up, and as we go on to school and through education, higher education, even more higher education, that thirst for knowledge, that desire to know more is built into us. But the most, by far the most important appetite is spiritual. God, in Ecclesiastes, says, God put eternity into our hearts. And because God put eternity into our hearts, there is a deep down latent desire to know why am I here? Who am I? What's life all about? Now, of course, there's those who don't know that God has put eternity in our hearts. From time to time, they wonder why, but they don't know the reason for it because God has built it into us. Then there's those who deny it entirely. They say there's no reason. There's no purpose. You live like a dog, you die like a dog, you're buried like a dog. You're just a piece of dirt. That's all you are. No purpose, no reason. The Apostle Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who put it down, who try to ignore it and deny it. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Why do you think planet Earth is so beautiful? Why is there so much majestic scenery? that takes your breath away. It's God saying, hey, look, see, this couldn't just have happened. I made this. Notice this, see this, and acknowledge me. But the trouble is, once somebody acknowledges there is a God, then there's ramifications with that. There's consequences. What are you going to do? Because then you're going to be asked more questions. And so they deny that. Because the, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man with birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Anthony Flew, who died just, just a few years ago, I think it was 2006, Anthony Flew was about 90-something when he died. For all of those years, he was the poster boy for atheism. Dawkins now is the next one, but he was the one before that. Verlian atheist, did not believe in, in, in God in any shape, form, or fashion, wrote books, lectures, all this evolution, naturalism, that was his whole theme. But very late on in his life, just a couple of years before he died, he had to rethink. Because faith was such undeniable order and design in the universe. At last he had to hold his hands up and say, do you know what? Now, he didn't say, I believe in the Christian God, but do you know what? There has to be an intelligence to design this. It could not just have happened. You know, that sent shockwaves through, through his peers. They were absolutely shocked to the core. This is the man for all those years had denied this. And now he's saying, do you know what? I was wrong. Now he says, I don't believe in the Christian God, but... He says there has to be an intelligence. There has to be a higher power. This could not just have come together. I don't know if he ever believed in the Christian God before he died. But he certainly had an epiphany when it came to, when it came to creation. And he got slaughtered for it. They said he had dementia. The, the, the book was, was written, co-written by another because he was an old man. But he, he refuted that. He says, no, everything in that book, he says, that's me. That's what I said. He just put it down for me. And so this fourth beatitude gets right to the heart of where we are spiritually. Matthew 5 and 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Everybody is looking for some kind of contentment. They're looking for peace. They're looking for fulfillment. They're looking for their itch to be scratched. But they're not finding it because they're looking in the wrong places. Do you ever have a niche in the small of your back and you couldn't scratch it? Why is the niche always in the place where you can't reach? You know, I do. I go over and open the door. I like an old cow in a barn. I rub my back against the door. <laughs> or else get a big stick and get it down your collar. But people are looking that itch to be scratched, and they don't know how to do it. It just will not go away. Because there's a God-shaped vacuum in their lives, and they can't fill it, no matter how much they try. <clears throat> And they hunger and they thirst after the wrong things completely. Now, isn't it an interesting choice of words that Jesus uses here? You know, if we, if we were doing a word association game, and I said to you, tell me the first thing that comes into your mind if I said blessedness. 
Not one in 10 million would say hungering and thirsting. She wouldn't. It would not even enter your brain. But Jesus said that. <coughs> Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's a blessedness even in the hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Remember, when Jesus said this, if we had read a previous chapter, when Jesus said this, he had just come off a 40-day, 40 40-night 40 fast in the wilderness. So he was very keenly aware what hunger felt like. Anybody that has ever fasted any reasonable length of time, you know what hunger feels like. <coughs> Isn't it amazing how much fasting shows you how big a part food has in your life? You know, we eat every day. You never think a thing about it. But you try not eating for a week. I guarantee you, that's all you'll be thinking about. It'll just fill your whole mind. You'll smell every food smell there is. <laughs> and if you go on a diet, <laughs> you never think as much as food in your life until you go on a diet, and suddenly it's all you can think about. <laughs> so Jesus, in pointing this out, he knew what hungering for food was like. He knew what thirsting for drink was like. And he's saying that that overwhelming desire to fill our bellies, that should be the intensity of desire for spiritual things. You know, whenever you do fast, by the way, what you're really saying to God is, God, as much as I'm hungry for this food, I'm hungrier for you. I'm prepared to put this aside for a day or a week or whatever the case may be. I'm prepared to lay this aside to seek your face. My hunger for you is greater than my hunger even for my food. That's the heart of fasting, by the way. The psalmist, onto the Old Testament, he didn't have the New Testament, didn't have Christ. But even he was passionate about seeking after the Lord. Psalm 84, to my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants after you, O God. Deuteronomy 6 and 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. What are you hungry for today? Whatever you're hungry for, you'll look for a way to fill it. Whatever it is. Your energy, your time, your thoughts your meditations, your conversations, your money, everything will go into filling that hunger. So that's why we have to be careful what we're hungering after. That's why Jesus 
is telling us the blessedness of hungering after righteousness. Some people are spiritually anorexic. They've lost their appetite. They get by on the meagerest of rations. Everything is measured. And the Lord never wants us to be spiritually anorexic. He wants us to eat well, healthily, spiritually. A good appetite is healthy, isn't it? Now, most people normally, if you take ill, usually you lose your appetite. How many times in all these years I've visited people in hospitals, how many times if I went in, and, and particularly if it was lunchtime, and they're at their lunch, how many times did I see them just picking at it? Or oftentimes it wasn't even touched. So you're not going to eat your lunch today. Don't feel like eating a bite. My appetite's gone. And so it's not naturally healthy to have no appetite. We need an appetite. Some of us are appetites. Well, enough said. Listen to this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. They shall be filled. Now that's both a promise and a paradox. The more you're filled spiritually, the more hungry you become. You will be filled if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the promise. But the paradox is, when you're filled, you're hungry for more, spiritually. Now, we know that eating normal food, you know that when you have your lunch today, after church, you know that's not going to be your last meal. That'll do for a wee while, for a few hours. And then you'll feel packish again. And then you'll have another wee meal. <laughs> the fact that you can't eat shows your appetite is good. Therefore, your hunger will return. But the paradox is, spiritually, the more you're filled, the more you want of what filled you. Your appetite grows continually for more spiritual food. Psalm 107, 9, For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Isaiah 55 and 1, if I, let me just read this here. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Whenever Mary was 
singing her Magnificat when she was so blessed because of what the Lord had done for her. And Luke 153, she said, He has filled the hungry with good things. And Jesus talked about the good things of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we want to be filled with. But there's a hunger when you're filled with spiritual things that's not like ordinary food. See, let me put it this way. Sometimes you sit down and your wife has made you just a beautiful meal, a big meal. And you eat that thing and you're just stuffed. You couldn't eat another bite. And I say, Sally, take that big pavlova away. I couldn't even look at it. <laughs> no, you never say that because there's always room for dessert, isn't there? No matter how full you are, you'll find room for that dessert. It just slides down, doesn't it? It slips down. But in eating ordinary food, there comes a point where you're filled to bursting and say, well, that's it, I can't eat anymore. But spiritually, you don't get to that place. Because when you're filled, you're still looking for more. You're greedy for more. You want more. It's so good. John 4, 13 and 14, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst Everything man thirsts for and hungers for in the natural will never satisfy. Never satisfy. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Never thirst for what? Never thirst for that worldly thing you were thirsting for. When you get a taste of the spiritual thing that Christ has for you, you don't want that worldly stuff anymore. You don't hunger for that anymore. It's gone. It's out of your life. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. For what? For the things of the world. Shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. For what? For the things of the world. Your appetite totally changes. Your taste changes. Do you know when you get old, your taste changes? Do you know that? Mm. I, I find my taste has changed the older I get. There's things that 30 years ago you loved, and I could, no desire to eat them. I mean, I was joking about Pavlova's there a while ago, but I mean, Sally, she can bake. Whenever we get married at the start, all new married men put on weight. Amen? Isn't that right? Because our wives so want to impress us, they so want to bless us. They just feed us. Because their mother says, the man, wait a man's heart's through his stomach. So that comes down through the generations. And boy, we get pavlovas, we get apple tarts, we get cinnamon tarts, we get everything going. I couldn't even eat a pavlova. Honestly, I was joking. I, I honestly couldn't eat one anymore. I don't even like them. Even if I'm out somewhere, it'd be the last thing in the dessert tray I would even want. Why? I get sickened of it. We had them till they're coming out our ears. <laughs> but spiritually it doesn't get like that spiritually the more you eat spiritually the more you want it tastes so good you don't lose the taste for it you shouldn't we do but we shouldn't it's so good 
Now, these words of Jesus, they stress three things. The priority of purpose. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Is righteousness our goal in life? Is that our priority of purpose? You say, well, hold on a minute, David. I thought when I, when I, once I was in Christ, I was the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm, I'm made righteous, that's true. But it's all that flows out of us being righteous. That's what we hunger for. It's all that righteousness entails. It's all that comes with righteousness. Blessed are they that hunger after righteousness. The Apostle Paul for 30 years, the greatest missionary evangelist that ever lived, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, opened up missions to the ends of the earth, turned the church upside down. Mighty, mighty man of God. I dare to say, nobody knew God more than the Apostle Paul. And yet after 30 years, what does he say in Philippians 3? That I might know him. That I might win him. That I might be found in him. He still wasn't fully satisfied. He still felt, I haven't got it all yet. I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet. I'm still looking more. If that was his testimony, where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Oh, his passion for Christ never, ever subsided. Ours does. Tell me this. Do you remember when you got saved at the beginning and you had that passion for Christ? You had that testimony to give. You couldn't wait till the church door was open. You loved the house of God. You loved the word of God. You just were passionate for more of Christ. What happened to that? Where did that go? Ach, I don't think I'll bother with church this week. Ach, ach, I'll go next. I'll maybe feel more like it next week. The prayer meeting, oh, that's hard work. Ugh, I don't think I'll bother. Reading the Bible, well, ugh, it's hard to understand at times, so I'll just give that a Bible. And before you know it, we're just drifting along. We've lost our passion. Paul never lost his. Never, ever lost it. Never subsided. Psalm 86 and 11 David prayed about a divided heart. He says, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Our, our hearts sometimes get splintered, don't they? They get pulled in different directions. Listen, we have all kinds of responsibilities, all of us. Family, jobs, education, everything. All kinds of responsibilities, which we have to do. Fine. 
But be careful in the doing of all of that, that the most important thing's not left to the one side. Why do we do that? Well, when I do this, then I'll catch up spiritually. No, you're never going to catch up spiritually. If that's what you feel, you'd never get your hearts divided. You need to get your heart united. Paul says, this one thing I do. Hmm. One thing I do. And then there's a persistence of pursuit. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, or the King James says, after righteousness. The persistence of pursuit. Sometimes you see it in a movie, or you see it sometimes in a documentary, where the bloodhounds are let loose, where they give that dog a sniff of someone's clothing who's escaped or who's lost. And once that dog gets a sniff of that, they're off on the trail. And nothing stops them. Through hell and high water, that bloodhound will go until it reaches its goal, until it gets that person. That's pursuing persistently. And I tell you, when it comes to spiritual things, you have to pursue persistently because your flesh doesn't want to do it. Your flesh doesn't want to pray. Your flesh doesn't want to read. Your flesh oftentimes doesn't want to go to church. But you have to discipline yourself and pursue it. Paul said in Philippians 3.12, Not that I have already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has also laid hold on me. Christ has laid hold on me for certain things, but I haven't fully laid hold on him yet. I haven't done it all yet. I haven't grasped everything that he's grasped me for. But I press on. I follow after the King James says. I'm pursuing Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you who are regulars, please forgive me for mentioning this again, but it's apropos to what I'm saying, so listen. When he says, I press on, the AV says, but I follow after. The word is dioko. Dioko. And Paul uses this word dioko again in Galatians 1.13 in relation to himself persecuting the saints. You remember how he got letters to go as far as Damascus? He was so hell-bent on destroying the church that he's even prepared to go outside his own country to do it. Anywhere where there's Christians, he was going to go, he was going to imprison them, or he's going to see them stoned to death. For you heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted, Dioko, same word, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I run after, I pursue, I strive. And just what he's saying is, just the way I strove to destroy the church, now I'm striving to build the church. All my energies and drive was to ruin the church. Now my energies and drive is to save the church and build up the church. 
Isn't it lovely when you see somebody who's been in the world, who's lived a terrible, terrible life, they have the testimony that God in the midst of all saved their soul. And all that energy and drive that they were doing the, to do the wickedness they did, now that's all energy and drive now is, is sanctified, and now they're going full out for God. Absolutely just full on for God. This is what happened to Paul. And this is what should be happening to us. All our energies and drives that we had before we were saved, where are they today? Do we use them for the church? Do we use them for the kingdom? Do we use them for Christ? This is what he's saying. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, let me just read this. Verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness. Righteousness is something that we have been given freely as a gift of God. But what, what it does to us, what it's meant to do, that's what we're to pursue. But pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. There's a lot of rubbish out there, a lot of nonsense talk. Avoid it and pursue that which is godly and right and good and righteous. Jesus said in John 1, 27, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. There's a pursuing, there's a following, and there's persistence. And then finally, the promise of perfection. When I say perfection, I'm talking about maturity, because none of us are perfect. Christ is perfecting us, but we're not perfect. And the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon one time was at a conference, and he heard this preacher talking about perfectionism. He was making out that a believer can be absolutely perfect in thought, word, and deed. And he was pontificating and he was holding forth on this. And after the meeting was over, when they're all having a meal, Spurgeon walked over with a great big jug of water and poured it all over his head. And he went ballistic. And he says, see, not perfected yet. <laughs> <laughs> Only Spurgeon would do that. <laughs> so none of us are perfect. But the promise of perfection, the promise of maturity, they shall be filled. There's the promise. And God's not a disappointment. Sure is not. Those that seek me early shall find me. So the goal is hungering and thirsty after righteousness to be filled, to be fulfilled, to be completely satisfied, to be perfect, to be perfected, to be brought to maturity. That's the goal. And after 30 years, Paul says, I haven't got there yet, but I'm pressing on. I'm striving after. I'm not giving up. I'm going to go for everything God's got for me. Is that our heart today? Is that our attitude? We're not there yet. Maybe we've lost some along the way, some feelings and desires along the way, but let's get it back. Let's get it back. Hmm. 
Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, and says, listen, be diligent. Be diligent. Whatever you're doing, be diligent in the doing of it. Just the way you're diligent in your job, you're diligent in your education, you're diligent, perhaps many of you, in your diet, you're diligent in your whatever. Be diligent in spiritual things. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, you shall be filled. Glory to God. And when you get filled, you'll be looking more. Until we get to the glory, we'll never be able to get enough. We'll never say, God, that's enough. I don't want any more. No, no, we need more, don't we? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.